0: Welcome to Murder and Mimosas, a true crime podcast brought to you by a mother and daughter duo, bringing you murder stories
1: with the mimosas in hand.
0: Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in.
1: Welcome back, Murder I'm Shannon.
0: And I'm Danica.
1: We're going to tell you the story of serial killer Scott Kimball, so let's jump in. Honestly, this guy is actually fascinating to me and infuriating at the same time. I spent a lot of time just trying to decide where to start with him, just a chronological order of his life, the end and work backwards, or maybe somewhere in the middle, which is where I decided to begin. One may think that this is a love story as it starts out. A lady named Lori McLeod was at a casino in Colorado when a man came up to the table pushing his mother in a wheelchair. That man was Scott Kimball. He struck up a conversation with Lori, and as Lori later recounts, he automatically seemed like a good guy because he was pushing his mother in a wheelchair. Of course, not many men listen to true crime, but if you're a guy listening, yes. Seeing you take care of someone elderly, taking care of a child, or having a dog are surefire ways to get a girl to talk to you. The two talked for a while at the table and hit it off. He told Lori he worked as an FBI agent, and was divorced with two sons. Before leaving, Lori slid her number to him, but before letting him have it, she jokingly says, You're not a felon or anything, are you? He says, you know what, I do for a living, right? So I can't be a felon and work for the FBI. Their first date was on Valentine's Day. Lori said she felt like he was a true gentleman. He brought her flowers, opened her car doors took her on nice dates that he paid for. As a single mom, this was a nice change of pace. I mentioned Scott had kids, but I failed to mention that Lori had a daughter that lived with her that was 19. She said Scott was great to her daughter, Casey, as well. They spent most of their time at Lori's, and she said he had some strange behaviors of getting up and leaving during the night when he was sleepover. She would ask where he was going, and he would say he was working. But because he was in the FBI, he couldn't tell her what he was doing or where he was going or when he would be back. He did at one time share the details of a case he was working on. She said he was working on the case of a woman named Jennifer that had disappeared, but he couldn't tell her many details. Danica, can you imagine if you were around somebody that says that, that they were going to give you a little bit of a story, but not like the whole story?
0: No, I don't think I could handle it. I would want to know every detail of every story, and he and I would probably end up divorced.
1: So he does finally bring Lori to his house, and she feels uneasy. She can tell a woman definitely decorated the place. She begins to wonder if he's still married and confronts him about the house. She said there weren't any clothes or toiletries there, but you could definitely tell a woman had decorated it. He tells her that he's leasing the place from a girl named Jennifer, and she left everything, furniture, decorations, all of it. He goes as far as showing her the lease agreement. Lori seems satisfied after seeing the lease.
0: Hey, you said Jennifer again. Is this the same woman he's looking for? If so, I mean, I guess it makes sense. You know, she's missing. Why not use her house?
1: Lori actually picks up on that, too, and she asks him about it. And he said, no, this is a whole different Jennifer. The two do eventually move in together. Casey had gotten off path at one point and had some issues with meth, hot checks, and running away. But she does manage to turn things around. She has a job at Subway and kicked the drug habit, which many say is really hard to do. Scott finds a foul of what looked like drugs in the couch and brings them to the attention of Lori. She comes to the determination that it had to be Casey's. She, of course, confronts her about it, and she denies they are hers. Lori, though, thought the best thing to do was to take Casey to the police. She tells Scott to keep an eye on Casey while she goes to get her purse. When she comes back, Casey has taken off on her bike. Lori tells Scott they have to find her. Scott leaves to look for her and tells Lori that he found her and got a motel room for her and her boyfriend. He's telling her, when you both calm down, then this, then we can have the conversation. Just let things cool off for a bit. Scott does all he can for Casey. He gives her rides to and from work when he can. He pays for the motel. He
0: buys them food to eat. I mean what what, more could you really want from a stepdad, right? He seems like a great stepdad, like he's really trying to step in and help diffuse the situation between Lori and Casey.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what it seems. So after three days, though, Casey's boyfriend shows up and tells Lori, Casey never came home last night, and Subway called wondering why Casey didn't come in for her shift. Her boyfriend was sure that Scott was the one that picked her up that day, and the day before, but Scott says he was in the mountains looking for a hunting spot and unable to pick Casey up for work. The police tell Lori they can't do anything because Casey was an adult and she had run away several times in the past. Scott assures Lori that he works for the FBI. Of course, he'll find her. He's going to use his resources with the FBI to find, to find Casey. So Lori trusts that Scott can find Casey. Or She'll return once she calms down. Scott, in the meantime, is gone for the week. Lori doesn't know where, but this wasn't unusual since Scott is in the FBI and things are super top secret. Once he doesn't return, Scott tells Lori they should run off to Vegas and get married, which is exactly what they do. They then take a honeymoon in the mountains a few weeks later. Years pass and Casey never returns, but her parents haven't lost all hope. In the meantime, Scott and Lori buy a cattle ranch and start a business called Rocky Mountain All-Natural Meat. Scott has his sons every other weekend, and they help on the farm. In 2004, Scott's youngest son was in an accident on the farm. A heavy steel grate falls on him. Scott rushes to the house and informs Lori. Lori is on the phone with 911, just frantic when she sees Scott take off in the car. She informs the operator, I guess we don't need anyone to drive him to the hospital. So Lori and her her oldest stepson, of course, get in the car and head to the hospital as well. Once there, Lori says there's blood everywhere and he has a traumatic brain injury. The doctor said that this was from falling out of the car. She asked, what do you mean he fell out of a car? It was a grate that fell on him. And the doctor says on the way there... He also fell out of the car. When he does come out of the coma, he asks why his dad did this to him. He tells them that his father pushed him out of the car. The neurosurgeon dismisses this, saying he does have a brain injury and could not be recalling what all happened correctly. Terry, Scott's uncle from Alabama, then moves in to help him with the farm while Scott spent so much time at the hospital with his son. Terry had just recently gotten a divorce and let's just say Lori was not a fan of his. She said he was a heavy drinker. He didn't mind walking around from the bathroom to the bedroom without anything on and he just frankly made her uncomfortable. But they needed the help so what could she do? Plus he was family. Lori comes home from work one night and finds Scott cleaning the couch. He tells her one of Uncle Terry's dogs got sick on it. She lets him know that spot is way too big to be from a dog. He tells her maybe it was just Uncle Terry and he was too embarrassed and blamed it on the dog. She asked where Terry is and he said he had won the lottery and ran off with a stripper to Mexico. Lori didn't ask any questions because she just was thankful he was out of her house. So then in 2006, a bank in Lafayette, Colorado, called the police because about 80,000 had disappeared from a client's business account. From what they could tell, someone was forging checks. The police began investigating, and all the money led back to Rocky Mountain All-Natural Meat.
0: And that's the one that Scott and Lori opened, right?
1: Yes, that's the one. The police began to review bank video surveillance, and see that Scott is the one cashing all these checks. They look further into Scott and find this wouldn't be the first time Scott had actually served time in another stake for check fraud.
0: Whoa, 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 wait. So that would be a felony, and he can't actually be an FBI agent if he's a felon. That's right, but there is so
1: much more that comes to light than just that. The police show up at Scott's house to talk to him about the checks. He wasn't home. In fact, Lori said she didn't know where he was. She was under the impression he had something to do with his job. Not the one as a farmer, but with the FBI.
0: I found out pretty much everything he had ever said to me was a lie, including his employment status with the FBI. He had written a bad check in Montana and had served time for that.
1: They tell her he served time before for this. Naturally, Lori is shocked. She also tells them about her daughter missing, and Scott was the last person to have seen her. The police dig into the supposed FBI gig, and when they contact the FBI, they find out he's, of course, not an agent, but is a paid informant for the FBI.
0: Wait, an informant? I mean, how did that come about?
1: I mentioned he had served time before for check fraud. In 2002, Scott's cellmate was Steve Honest. He told the FBI he could help with a double murder. He tells them that Steve and Jennifer had a murder plan. There were two people that were going to testify against Steve, and Scott informed the FBI they were going to be murdered. Jennifer would be the so-called hitman.
0: Okay, so who's Jennifer? Because he keeps using this random name over and over.
1: This was Jennifer Markham. She was Steve's girlfriend. She was 25, um mom of a five-year-old son, and worked as a stripper. Jennifer, like most, had dreams of a different life. Jennifer's dream was to own a sandwich and coffee shop someday. Steve had hoped to help her dreams come true, but he was arrested and put in prison when his ecstasy distribution ring was busted. Scott, at the time, is telling Steve once he gets out, he would take Jennifer to Washington to open a coffee shop and help her get on on her feet and off out of the stripping business. Steve is all for that. Once Scott is out, he goes to Jennifer and tells her about the plan. Jennifer doesn't take him at face value. She goes and talks to Steve herself, asking, can she trust Scott? This by the way was made known to the known by a recording from a jail conversation. Steve assures her she can, and the FBI is paying Scott to keep tabs on Jennifer. Jennifer comes up missing, though. Her car is found at the Denver airport, but no sign of Jennifer at all. Two years pass, and her family don't know anything. Her father asks a friend at the police station to run her name through the database as a favor to him. He finds out the FBI are investigating the case and gives him contact information.
0: Wait, what? How do they not know the FBI are investigating her disappearance?
1: I'm not sure. I couldn't find that information. And believe me, I really tried. I would have to assume it was just to keep things confidential. The agent didn't give him much information, but said, I'm going to put you in touch with our informant. Just call him Joe Snitch. He meets up with Joe Snitch at a park. Mr. Snitch tells him he knows where Jennifer's body is and that they need to get her body so they can have a proper Christian burial.
0: So he knows she's dead and no one has given her family that news?
1: That's what he claims and he offers to take Bob, to Jen- Bob Jennifer's father, up to the mountains to get her body for burial. Her father had a bad feeling about this informant, and he declined the offer. He was like, Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. So he's like, I I don't wanna die today because so the FBI and says the informant knows where my daughter is. The FBI says he doesn't actually know that. He's just messing around
0: with you. Um, I'm sorry, but I wasn't aware like FBI says if you want to know about the case, talk to our informant. That just sounds sketchy from the jump.
1: Right. So not to mention the agent saying he's messing with you. So Bob happens to take down the plates of Joe Snitch and ask a friend to run those plates. The plates come back as Scott Kimball, and this is who Bob believes has killed his daughter. Now the detective that set out investigating check fraud has uncovered that Scott may be connected to two missing women and begins to call around to other police stations in the area to see if they had any run-ins, with him. One was Louisville, or Louisville, I'm sorry, where they say they are looking into
0: attempted murder on his son. I mean, was there motive to kill his son? That doesn't seem to fit the MO of all the other people since they've been missing women.
1: When the police checked into this case a few years prior, they found that he had been calling to see the beneficiary of the life insurance on his son the same day of the supposed accidents. He would have received $50,000 if his son had died. They actually never got enough evidence in any of that to prosecute him though. So Thatcher goes to the DA and they decide they will arrest him for check fraud right now. However, when they go to arrest him, they can't find him. He is on the run, but he is staying in touch with Lori. He tells Lori he is in Alaska, and he's sending her pictures from Alaska. She believes him, and she's telling him, this all must be just some kind of misunderstanding. Just come home. We'll just sort this check mess out. The police are tracing her calls, though, and they let her know he's not actually in Alaska, but California. They track him down, and a police chase ensures. Scott is trying to get away, but this guilty guy literally runs out of gas. Sadly, this would be me on a police chase, too, because I'm always on empty.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Once they really start investigating Scott for Casey and Jennifer, Lori realizes that Scott was the last one to see his Uncle Terry, too. The police check into the lottery story, and lo and behold, There was no record of Terry winning the lottery or going to Mexico. They now have someone else who may be a victim of Scott. Police retrieve all his belongings that Lori still has. They confiscate his computer and find snuff videos, and they also have a picture of a woman they didn't recognize. The detective is wondering who the woman is on the computer. He decides to look into Scott's other prison buddies or cellmates, and he comes across a guy named Stephen Hawley. Steve was a prison mate, and he was sitting in prison for life for bank robbery. The detective checks the logbooks and notices Scott has come to see him, and there was a lady by the name of Leanne Embry that used to always come to see him as well, but stopped. He takes the picture on the computer to Steve, and he asks if this is Leanne. Of course, it is. He asks about his friendship with Scott. He says that he and Scott had once made an escape plan, and Leanne Embry would be in Mexico waiting for him. Once Scott got out, he was going to drive his truck through the prison wall and have other inmates create a diversion. And Steve was going to escape, and He had told Leanne about this and told her she could trust the man he was sending. Scott advised Steve, don't tell her my name, just call me Hannibal. Scott, in the meantime, goes to the FBI right away around that time he was going to get out and tells the FBI that Steve plans to escape. They put him in solitary confinement.
0: He double-crossed another inmate. This guy is kind of a genius at times. I told you at the beginning, he was kind of fascinating.
1: So Scott does find Leanne once he's out and he tells her they're going to go to Mexico and they're going to wait on Steve. Leanne was a 24-year-old stripper that had issues with bipolar and, of course, her family didn't like her taste in men. Leanne told her dad she was going caving in Mexico, which was a hobby of hers. Her father was actually glad because he thought it would be getting her away from worrying about Steve in prison. Once Steve gets out of the hole, he writes to Leanne's father because he hasn't seen or heard from her. He writes him back saying he hasn't either. The police find her car in Utah and read the license plate to her father. He couldn't believe it because, of course, he's thinking she's in Mexico. He then filed a missing person report. Steve told her dad to contact the FBI as soon as possible, which he did. Steve won't tell her family or FBI who Hannibal is, though, because he doesn't want to put the Emory family in danger. They never realize it is Scott, and this is the one that last saw her. So June 2007, Scott is still sitting in prison. They go to him, question him about all the missing people, and he denies everything. Police talk to him many times, and he's stonemaw. He gives up nothing and says he knows nothing. Then one time, while speaking with him, he says, federal prison is better and nicer than state prison. What if one of these women were murdered on federal forest land? Would that put me in federal prison? The detective remembers a receipt from a grocery store in Walden, Colorado, that he got from all the stuff Lori gave him of Scots that she had kept. And he goes back to find it. The date on it is August 21, 2003, right around that time, Casey went missing. He calls the U.S. Forest Service and asks if they have had any recovered bodies in that area. They said they did have one right before winter. They do DNA analysis, and lo and behold, it's Casey.
0: It dawns on Lori
1: that they camped in that forest on their honeymoon.
0: And so that creep took her to where he killed her daughter for their honeymoon?
1: Yes. It gave me chills when I found this out. So after finding her body, Scott decided to talk. He would agree to 48 years to white-collar crimes, and lead investigators to other bodies. In February of 2009, the search was on for Jennifer and Leanne. He leads investigators to one creek bed, puts a flag in it, and says, Here, right here. They dig all day with shovels, with excavators, and come up with nothing. A few days later, they go back out, and he leads them to another creek bed puts a flag in it and says, Merry Christmas. This is where Jennifer is. They dig again all day, coming up with nothing. A month later, they take him back out and he leads them to another creek bed. And the investigators walk around and he finds a hair clip with hair in it. And it turns out to be Leanne. They take him to multiple sites and never find Jennifer before they decide they're done with this outings and looking like idiots. Since they never recover Jennifer, he doesn't get the deal. Instead, he's given 70 years in prison. They do continue to look, but not with Scott's help anymore. They do recover the body of Terry. He was wrapped in a tarp and shot in the back of the head.
0: Okay, but what's the motive in that?
1: I had mentioned he was newly divorced when he left Alabama. He had a suitcase full of money from the divorce. Plus, police also thought another possible motive could be he found out he tried to kill his son and Scott killed him to keep him quiet. I personally just see it being the money. They are still investigating him and other murders that looks like he might be a good suspect for. You know I like to dig into backgrounds or childhoods if I can find anything, so... Let's look into Scott's a little bit. Scott was born in 1966, and when he was 10, his mother informed his father she was a lesbian, and the two split up. This would have been in 1976, and this was taboo then. I know there was some peace, love, and all that, but if you were a mom with kids, this wasn't taken well. Scott and his brother would often go to his grandmother's on the weekends And her neighbor took an interest in the boys, if you want to call it that. So he began taking them to his cabin. He had at first was just having him touch them and, of course, moved on to them being tied up and raped. And this pervert would
0: film them. Scott didn't. Didn't tell anyone.
1: Didn't tell anyone back then because this guy named. Theodore Payton told him he would kill his father if he ever told. This abuse went on until Scott was 23 and shot himself in the head trying to kill himself.
0: Wait, 23? He was an adult. He didn't have to keep coming back around this guy.
1: I know. I was thinking the same thing. This was a neighbor. Just say no. I don't want to hang out with you. I honestly don't know. I haven't been in that situation, so I can't say I do know it took a toll on him if he attempted to commit suicide. We know, of course, he didn't die. The bullet bounced on his skull, but he was in ICU for several days. A cousin of his says he's never been the same after that.
0: Okay, what happened to his abuser, Peyton?
1: He was convicted and sentenced to a whole seven years and served five of those.
0: I mean, that's horrible. This went on for decades.
1: Yeah, that doesn't feel like justice in my book. So for years, Scott had just had white collar and petty crimes. He was convicted of his first felony at 22 for bad checks. He'd been arrested for breaking into houses, but nothing major. I don't know how it went from that to the huge lead around 2002 to murder, but maybe it began earlier that we don't know about and all will come to light at some time. So that's all about all about I have to say for the FBI informant that was murdering people while he was an informant. So let us know your thoughts.
0: We always recommend more bubbly and less OJ. Cheers. If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter, And if you have a case you'd like us to do, then send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us, so please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.